Hello and welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. We are a graduate student-led organization at Harvard University focused on generating discussions between scientists, other experts, and enthusiasts. The global pandemic caused by the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, has changed the world and altered all of our lives. In this series of episodes titled Scientists at Home, we present narratives of life and research during the pandemic from scientists and academics across a broad range of disciplines and stages of their careers. We hope that in hearing these narratives, you'll feel a sense of camaraderie with the scientific community as we acclimate to these difficult times. Hi there, my name is Chad Stein, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Biological and Biomedical Sciences program at Harvard University. On December 4th, 2020, I sat down with my colleague, Dr. Benjamin Martin, to talk about his experience with the pandemic. Ben is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Biological Chemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at Harvard Medical School. His research is focused on understanding how genes decide when and where to turn on and off. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, would you mind just uh, introducing yourself? Yeah, so I'm Benjamin Martin, or Ben Martin normally, and I am a postdoc in Karen Adelin's lab, so your colleague there, Chad. And before that, I did my PhD with Leanne Howe at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, which is where I was born and grew up. And then I've, so I've now been in Boston for about two years. And for those who maybe aren't as familiar, would you mind explaining what a postdoc is? Yeah, so a postdoc uh, is someone who's got their PhD. So I defended my PhD in 2018. And then a postdoc is basically just, you've joined someone's lab. Uh, I don't have any educational requirements, but I'm just doing research. Um, so I have a couple projects that I'm working on. And uh, yeah, just, you know, do science. Before we get to your science, you said you grew up in Canada? Vancouver, for those who don't know it, it's a very outdoorsy city. So I've grown up spending time on the ocean and in the mountains. And that's very much where I feel most at home is in the outdoors. Was the adjustment to the... Uh... Know, the U.S. Northeast difficult? So it's 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 actually been really cool. On the West Coast, we have big mountains. Everything's steep, and that's beautiful. And New England has its own beauty, just in a very different way. And so we've really, my wife and I, really enjoyed getting out to see the ocean and the forests and the, mount, the mountains here have their own beauty. So we've done a lot of hiking in the White Mountains, and it's been different but really cool. I understand you also have a, uh, a canine companion that goes with you. Yes, we have a miniature Australian shepherd named Pilot, and he he loves the hiking probably more than we do or as much as we do. And he's a little dog, but he does really enjoy going up big mountains. So I'm curious to hear what it's about what you've been working on scientifically for the last couple of years. Like I run an ailment lab, I'm trying to understand how genes are turned on and off. And how did you get interested in that? So I actually got interested in this topic back in my undergrad. One of my fourth year lectures the prof was Leanne Howe, who became a PhD supervisor, um, and she gave a, a lecture on this topic. And I was captivated. I thought that that is the coolest thing I've, you know, I've heard, I've learned in my undergrad. And so I, I reached out to her and did a, an undergrad thesis uh, project in her lab and then stayed on there for grad school and have been studying that topic ever since. Yeah, it's crazy to think how like sometimes one lecture can change your whole life. What are you excited about in your research? Yeah, I mean, I think so moving here in my 
PhD, I used uh, Baker's yeast as a model organism, which is a really powerful model uh, system for studying this topic. But it, you know, there's only certain questions you can ask with yeast. And so when I came here, I switched to using mouse cells, and this this opens up a whole new whole new realms of regulation uh, for gene expression and cell differentiation. And so I'm, I'm, I've been really enjoying learning this new system and the the new sets of questions I can now start to ask. For instance, you know, some of the experiments I've done, um, even though not the main focus, are taking these stem cells and differentiating them into another type of cell and asking how does that, how do these proteins I'm studying regulate that process and how does gene expression change? And that's not really an experiment you can do with a single-celled organism like yeast. So it's it's uh, been fun and exciting to learn new approaches and new techniques. Do you ever miss yeast? Um, yes. So, I mean, yeast, one of the great advantages of them is everything's fast to do and you have like very clean genetic tools um, to use. So aspects like that, like being able to quickly ask questions in more definitive ways, I do miss, but I also like the new, the new types of things I can do. Well, let's, let's go back in time a little bit uh, to maybe, you know, January, February before, you know, the whole pandemic situation was really in full swing. Yeah, I mean, so back in January, February, like, you know, I was pretty focused on the research I was doing and, you know, what are the next set of experiments I want to do. And news that started filtering out about COVID and, you know, in hindsight, the signs were all there. But at the time, you know, you know, here's another swine flu or another something. And so you don't, I didn't think it would be, you know, I didn't envision this full shutdown. And then as we went into February, March, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but February, March, we started to get, okay, more, more worrying signs. And then things started moving very quickly in March. Like, I think we were, you know, it was at some point in March, we're like restricting gatherings of more than 50 people. And then it was only about 10 days later, we were completely shut down. It's also weird to think that was also like very pre-masks. Yeah. There were like, there were two people in the lab wearing masks, I think. And at that point, there were no recommendations for it. So everyone's kind of like, oh, you know, you're wearing a mask, why is that? And they're explaining. I was like, okay, but no one else was. And then it was a while before Boston even recommended wearing masks. And then and then now it's like strange to be around people without masks. Definitely. Yeah. Sometimes I'll watch like TV shows and see people without masks and think, what are they doing? I guess yeah. COVID isn't in some fictional world. Okay, so we went from zero to 100 pretty quickly. Um, what did that look like for your research? How disruptive yeah. was it? There was a bunch of, I was making sequencing libraries, which for those who don't know, they were experiments that take a long time to come together. They sequence them and you get a whole bunch of data back, which then takes weeks or months to analyze. And so I was in a mad scramble to try and get these sent off and I was able to get them sent off just before the shutdown. Uh, so that was good. But like, obviously I had a bunch of more experiments I wanted to do. And I realized that I didn't know when I would next be able to do them. And so I realized I'd have to, spend a lot more time doing analysis and thinking and writing and whatever else. But there's also just at that time, a lot of logistical stuff in the lab about, okay, we're shutting down. What, what does that look like? You know, what do we have to do to be able to safely shut down? You know, how, what are we going to do with our cell lines? Who's going to be checking on things like the minus 80s to make sure they haven't gone? Who's checking on liquid nitrogen? And so, and there were a few of us who were on like the emergency list so we could go in and check on things and make sure everything was okay. But it was a pretty, it was a pretty hectic time. Like, like we were saying, it was, it was zero to hundred very fast. And so it was a bit of a blur of trying to get a lot of things, a lot of boxes checked, a lot of things kind of taken care of so that we could all go home. 
and at some point in the future, open up the lab again. Was there like one moment that you remember like it all hitting you? You're like, oh wow, this is really happening? Uh, in these moments, I tend to be pretty like task-oriented. So I was always like, next task, next task, next task. I had an external monitor at the lab, which so I'd, when I was there, I could do work with it. And I think it was like the last day we were in there, I brought that home. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not, like, and then, then I started thinking about how I'm going to set up, you know, my home working space. Um, and it's like, okay, we're really going to be here for a while. So you transitioned from being in the lab every day for the last however many years to, you know, being totally work at home um, in what was a pretty scary time, just based on what was going on in the outside world. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, it was, um, it's interesting. So it was a lot of unknowns of how it would go. I think one of the things that was tough was like, okay, we're going to shut down till the end of April, which means about six weeks. And then it's like, and then we'll, we'll reassess. And of course, you know, COVID was still a problem at that point at the end of it. So it kept going out longer and longer. We weren't sure when or if we'd ever get back. But for me, when we were shutting down, so my, my better half, she's a Pilates instructor. And so she also, you know, shut down everything because obviously she's not going to be teaching people in the studio in that time. And she went entirely virtual with the shutdown as well. And so we've got a little one bedroom apartment. And essentially what we did is we, our living room is for one bedroom apartment is like the largest room. And we pushed the table over like right by the couch. And I'd be, you know, on the couch with the table as my couch table desk working with headphones in. And she'd be, she'd have her computer facing the rest of the room from the other side of the table. And that would be the Pilates studio. And so we were in a very small space, both working from home and, you know, just, just getting through it the best we could. And it pleasantly surprised with how it all went in terms of managing the space and us both being able to work. But yeah, but then, you know, we tried to, you know, you could still get out and go for walks and take, take the dog. So we're at least getting outside as much as we could. What were your work days like, or was it kind of different every day in the beginning? Yeah, different every day. It's, I think one of the things that's, that I found hard was trying to come up with a new routine. You know, it's easy to get up and stay in your PJs, have another coffee and like, and then not have an end to the day either. And so you kind of just have this kind of 12 hour, you know, mostly working, sometimes not. And like it, I find that can be tough mentally. And so we did, we started being a bit cleaner about when we'd move the table for Pilates, for instance. So we'd push the table over to the couch and then it's, you know, work time. And there's, you know, I've got my couch desk, Catherine has her studio. And then when we're done moving the table back and being like, okay, now we're back into a, a apartment setup. So, yeah. So some little things like that kind of help break up the day and make it a bit cleaner when, when, when I was working and when I wasn't. And at that point you were like in total computational mode. Yeah. Yeah. So I went total computational mode and um, I actually started analyzing types of data that I hadn't before. So I actually, it was a big learning curve uh, learning experience for me. And so to be honest, when we went back, I still had more work to do. So I was like, Oh, it's, I could have been locked down a bit longer, but yeah, it was fairly computational at that point and getting used to lots of zoom meetings as, as well as everyone else. I understand that you also helped to start a pretty uh, vibrant you know, research community during the shutdown time. It's it's been like you know the the pandemic has been horrible in so many ways and like it's been so disruptive. But there have been I think some some silver linings in there. And so this was definitely a bright spot for me. And so this is something a friend started on Twitter. Just she just started talking like, hey, you know, Twitter at that point was this was in March. 
you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the end of the world, you know, rightly so. Um, but she's like, I'd, I would just like a space to talk about science and not be bombarded with all the news. And so she said, hey, why do people think about starting a Discord server? Discord being similar to Slack is how I understand it. And she started this, this Discord group and she called it the Fragile Nucleosome, which is something that we talk about in the fields. But her point was, you know, it can be there for when you need it and go away when you don't. And so she started this, this server and I joined and helped manage it. And scientists from all over the world in the field joined. And so it's, it's quite an active community. We kind of do online social events and journal clubs and all sorts of things. But one, one aspect of it was a seminar series that we started. So we had our first seminar April 1st and that's been really fun. And so we've done, we've, we, we had almost 40 seminars over the year that we hosted. Uh, we started with just one per thing and then we split into two. So we'd have a trainee and a PI each give a talk. So we had 50 or 60 scientists present the work through this. And people like people really, really took to it. We had fantastic speakers, both kind of well-known famous scientists and people who are fantastic, gave fantastic talks who um, some of them I hadn't heard of before and I'm sure were new to, to many of our audience. And it's really kind of opened up my eyes and I think to many others of how we can be so much more connected than we are. And that's been a really kind of a really cool, cool thing to realize. And so, you know, I've now made friends with people um, at all these different institutes that I would never be able to travel to and meet. And maybe we'd meet at a conference, but, you know, I've made connections with, with grad students in India and they've been able to attend, attend these seminars and hear from these scientists and interact with them. And so it's been a, really cool thing and I hope it does continue um, into the future like kind of this virtual seminar series is a lot to a lot to offer and it can complement some of the, the in-person visits that we're having. Do you think that this model of like virtual connectivity will be kind of a new paradigm for how scientists communicate? I think so I, I mean I think you know th there's no replacement for in-person interaction but something like a seminar series is interesting like when I did my PhD at UBC you know, it's, it's a fantastic school, um, a good research environment there, but it actually was relatively rare that I had scientists in my field coming through to give seminars. And so, you know, that you know, you'd circle all those, but only be a handful in the year that I'd be like, okay, here's a seminar in my field, someone I want to meet. Whereas, you know, with the virtual seminars, you, you can see someone in your field every week. You, we have these kind of coffee chats afterwards that you can interact with them and Again, it's not the same as in person, but it's it's a real filling a need that was there pre-pandemic, and I think will be there post-pandemic. You know, maybe like in Boston, it's such a hub that there are seminars in the field, so it's maybe less of a need there. But I think it still is useful. But for people like myself doing my PhD, this would have been fantastic. For like some of the friends I now have in places like India, it's so rare to get some of some of the scientists in the field giving seminars in person. So. It's a real benefit to these virtual platforms. And you know, the other thing that's nice about it is it's much easier. It's, it's a platform where you really can experiment and try new things. You know, I guess there's a fear, like if you're hosting a big conference that, you know, it costs a lot of money, there's a lot invested into it. I mean, this, this is free for us. There's no, there's no real barrier to trying new things and innovating. And it, one of the things we've tried to do is give a platform for trainees to speak. And so having a, a student or a postdoc presented every series has been great. Trying to give a platform for younger PIs as well 
and we've got lots of other ideas. So hopefully we'll be able to incorporate some new experiments in the new year. Is there anything that you've tried that previously you might have thought sounded kind of crazy, but you know, worked either really well or anything that you wish could have gone better? I mean, to be honest, I think the virtual platform for seminars as a whole, I was, it's gone way better than I thought it would. So I think that's been really good. I think the one thing we haven't really figured out is like the interactiveness. Um, and so we've been doing these coffee chats afterwards and they're okay, but kind of these meet the speaker sessions, some of them have go better than others. And I think it is, Zoom is maybe not the best way to have a group conversation with 10 people. And so I think that's been, a, that's been something that we haven't, we're not happy with any one format yet. One of the, for the, not the seminar series, but for the Discord server, the Federal Nicholas Zone, we had a social last weekend on a platform called GatherTown, which I think has a lot of, of, a lot of benefits. Basically, you have a little character on a map and everyone's on there. And when you walk up to someone else on the map, then your videos pop up and you can chat. And so it's a way to break up the, you know, rather than having 20 people on a Zoom call and kind of have like some sort of communal discussion, you can break up into smaller groups and more naturally move from group to group. And so it was, it was, I mean, to be honest, it was hilarious that we were having a lot of fun with the platform, but I think something like that I'd like to try more of in the future as even something like poster sessions could work through that. You can incorporate uh, PDFs and so you could click on it and open it up and then talk to someone about the poster. So I think there, there are ways to do virtual stuff better than we have been. Have you found that other scientific communities have tried to like either take inspiration from what you've done or replicate it? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, we weren't the first to create an online community. You look at something like a uh, new PI Slack is a great example of an uh, online community that really has just been, you know, hugely beneficial to so many scientists uh, or future PI Slack would be another one. And, you know, we weren't the first to do virtual seminar series, though for the pandemic, we were, we were early in that. And now you can see that many more people are doing, there's more and more of these virtual seminar series. And so I think it's, it's cool for us to have kind of the, the link between the two. And so we kind of have this community connected to, with like the seminar series is like an outward facing aspect of it, but we can, it can spur discussion and interaction within the community, both before and after. But, you know, to, to be honest, I think it's great. The more, the more of this, the better. You know, like I said, it's so cheap and easy to put together a seminar series. And I think it just gives you a lots of options. And it for people at small, like for myself at you know, medium-sized institutions or people at smaller institutions, it gives you exposure to, you know, the most recent and the cutting edge science that it'd be hard to come by otherwise. Well, I hope it continues on well into the future. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, we don't really know what the future will hold. You know, how how will this go post-pandemic? You know, hopefully sometime next year we're returning to what something that looks more like normal. Uh, I think there still will be a need for what we're doing online, but we'll play later. Okay, so now, again, taking maybe a step back from the community you formed, when was it that we were, you know, thinking about ramping back up? What was that like for you? Yeah, so that was... Um, you know, that was hard because Harvard was trying to figure like everyone was trying to figure out what, what was the best course of action and how to do this, how to do this well, how to do this safely. And, you know, they're changing guidelines and changing information. And so you've got a lot of people doing the best they can with the information they have at the time. And so I was on the, the team who was setting up the lab to make it spaced out 
before everyone came back in. And so basically what we wanted to do was make it so that we, we were coming back in with one person per bay or before the video had two. And we wanted to make it so you could stay in your bay as much as possible without moving from bay to bay uh, for equipment. And so distribute the equipment across, make sure there's enough space and, and make it so that we could return and minimize any risk of transmission if one of us should happen to have COVID and not know about it. But, you know, so it's one of those things where you're just doing the best you can with the information you have at the time. And of course, you know, you do, you set something up one way and then you find out, oh no, the information's changed and the guidelines have changed and then you do it another way. And so I think it was really hard. Like, I think there were some people did amazing work on the administration side at HMS to have this come together as well as it did. But for us, you know, it was just doing, it was, we had, I think, two days to try and set up. And we had to basically move everything around the labs. It was a huge job, and we. But um, it was pretty fun to be out of the apartment at last, and to like feel like okay, we're. It was, you know, there was some nerves. Like, it's scary time with the pandemic, but putting that aside, it was very fun to have a, ta- a physical task and uh, feel like we're you know moving again. I found it I found it surreal and disconcerting to be honest, because it was, you know, you feel like oh, it's going to be back to normal, but then it's like the twilight zone where everything's just a little bit off. Everything's just a little bit weird. Um, and so we'd, you know, we're back in the lab doing it, but there's a whole procedure of, you know, self-diagnosing any symptoms before you get in. And it was getting accustomed to wearing a mask for the whole day, which was a new experience, but it was nice to be back. And yeah, we, our lab essentially did like for the first few months, it was a strict one week on one week off and the two shifts never interacted. And then as the restrictions were lifted uh, with the public health recommendations. Um, we're now doing like a loose one week on, one week off. And it does, it's now kind of settled into a routine. It does actually feel, you know, it's, it's amazing how quickly I've now made this new normal feel normal. <laughs> a year ago, this would have been absolutely bizarre, but now it's just, so oh, it's on the data lab. How did the new normal affect your, your science? Yeah, I mean, so I think 2020, I've been in the lab for, a lot less than half the time I thought it would. I haven't put a hard number on it, but you know, there's a there's a very real cost in terms of the number of experiments I've been able to do. So there's definitely delayed de- delayed projects, and so that's uh, it's been you know it's it's forced me to spend more time thinking about what I'm doing, and more time on the computational side, um, which has you know had its own benefits. But I think it's you know it's been a, it's been a disruptive year. We had about two months at the start where we could do work unimpeded. And then since then, it's been some level of disruption and not completely disrupted at times. Have you felt like you've been given adequate support either scientifically or career-wise? Yeah, like I feel like everyone around me has been great. You know, it's, it's not much, there's not much people can do about, about you know, lab shutdowns are were necessary and were part of the response to the pandemic. I think that... The one thing that I'm really glad HMS is doing is that we're all getting tested once a week. And I think that's that's been really nice when we come back and having that frequent testing so that if cases are rising within within the institute that we'll know and kind of having that peace of mind that that I, I that I don't have it. It's nice. And more broadly speaking, how do you think COVID has affected science as an enterprise? Oh gosh. Um I think, you know, there's, there's huge challenges that science was already facing that have been exasperated. And so there's, 
there's been a lot of pressure on budgets, both for grants and for universities and for individual labs. And that's all been definitely not helped by COVID. Um, and so you're seeing, you know, there's, there's, there's a very competitive market to, to go from postdoc to a, a faculty position. And what was already very competitive now suddenly you have a fraction of the jobs being posted now as they were a year ago, just because many universities, they, they, just want, they, they have so much uncertainty around budgets right now that it's hard to post positions and to, hi- and to make new hires. And so for people kind of nearing the end of their postdoc and looking for jobs, it's a terrible time. And I don't know what sort of kind of domino effects that will have on the sub- subsequent years. That's we'll wait and find out. Yeah, so I think there's all sorts of issues in there. But, you know, I, I don't have first-hand experience. I don't really know too much. I just hope people, you know, find the jobs that makes them happy. Okay, so maybe to, to wrap up on a slightly happier note. Has there been anything you know, like hobby-wise or interest-wise or maybe TV movie-wise that you've picked up during the pandemic? Yeah, so one thing that I have become much better at and pretty proud of this. Um, so in my background, I played field hockey a lot. I played very competitively for a long time. And with um, the shutdown, obviously that's, that's you know, it's I haven't played since pre-shutdown and I won't play again until who knows when um, we're allowed to play sports again. So what I've been doing though is with my field hockey stick in our living room is playing with my dog. Field hockey ball is quite hard, so I didn't want to play with that. And so I've been playing with his dog toys. And at the start of the pandemic, he had one that was equivalent of a tennis ball and that was quite easy to dribble. And so I started with that. And then I moved on to like a webbed kind of spongy ball that's stickier and harder. And recently I've started dribbling his Kong, which is in a regular shape. And that that's quite a challenge. And so my ability to dribble dog dog toys with a field hockey stick has really gone through the roof this year. And I hope it continues. You know, I think I've got a future there. What's up next? What's after Kong? I mean, I don't think I've mastered Kong yet. So I don't want to get ahead of myself. Aspirationally. Yeah, aspirationally. I think, you know, Kong's pretty up there. He has um, basically like a plastic stick that doesn't really roll very well. So I think that would be, that would be another step again. I don't think I'm ready for it. I, I'll have to put him some serious work, you know, just to get past, just to, just to be comfortable with the Kong will take a lot of time, but the stick, you know, it's going to take some serious application. So it's been, it's been good for both of us. Good. I have to say that might be a, the most unique one I've heard so far. With that, I think we can wrap up. Uh, so it's been a pleasure talking, Ben. Thanks, Chad.